where lust for a whole life and nothing but less makes people jump out of a comfortable pond into an unknown ocean. Welcome to that journey between the East and the West. Who says Rolling Stones don't gather moss? Hello everyone, I am Meenu Gupta, your host for the day, and I'm delighted to have you join me every week as amazing people share their incredible and inspiring life stories of straddling continents. Thank you. So it was the late 90s. I was sitting with some dear friends and potential clients of the Italian government in a very beautiful restaurant in the Tuscan region of Italy, digging into delectable food when the talk veered to the poverty in India. My fork stopped in midair before descending very slowly to the plate. I could not eat further. As my dear friends continued to discuss the desperate state of many in India, indignation rose higher in my chest. Are you planning to do something about what you saw on your visit? I asked my comrades a bit sharply, startling them. They were taken aback. For me, poverty, injustice and related subjects are definitely not table talk. They are serious matters I would generally discuss if earnest solutions were being sought to put into action. Now, that is an excerpt from the pages of my life. In fact, I'm fairly skeptical of many conferences and meet and greet occasions. They are not my cup of tea. Then a few months ago, I came across what Nusrat Durrani had to say about conferences. These are his words. What's the point of the world's brilliant minds gathering to pontificate, drink champagne and eat fondue without their collective influence being harnessed to solve a problem? I look around these rooms and wonder how the audience would respond if a seven-year-old Afghani girl related the story of her parents' murder by the Taliban after being abandoned by the USA. It would kind of kill the buzz. Now, when I read these words and then a bit more, I knew that I had to invite him as a guest on my podcast. Why? Not only because I see that we are on the same page of related thoughts and perhaps some views, but also because from what I read, he's a legend who, in my opinion, is stitching the fabric of the world between the East and the West with his films, documentaries, and phenomenal work of giving a platform to voices, music, and the magic of the world. Nusrat is the award-winning New York-based founder and ex-GM of MTV World. He's also a media strategist and film and series producer. He created the acclaimed Rebel Music series for MTV, for which he was honored by former President Obama, as well as the omnibus film Madly, featuring love stories from renowned artists from across the globe includes the East and the West. His complete repertoire will take up many hours. In short, I find him to be a dedicated transmedia storyteller, photographer, humanitarian, and above all, an artist. In my view, that would, in a way, try to sum it up all. Thank you, Nusrat, for joining me in this journey today. And uh, my first question to you would be, if I ask you, who is Nusrat Durrani beyond the labels I just read out? These are some labels of the world, the roles that you play as a person. Who's Nusrat Durrani? Wow. I thought maybe you would start with an easier question than that. But I mean, who are we? That's an existential question that, you know, everybody's, everybody asks themselves. And the truth is, I don't know. I'm different people in different 
on different days and different hours. And, you know, I, I move like a phantom in and out of different realities. I mean, I can tell you that today from 4.30 in the morning till about 10.30 in the morning, I was a writer because I'm writing my first book. And in that time, in fact, I am traversing many different worlds and I'm in the heads of my characters and I'm going through their travels and adventures and travails and joys and sorrows like a ghost. But then, of course, that bleeds into the rest of my day, which in which I have to be a friend, a father, a provider, somebody who's working on multiple projects, somebody who's agonizing about the state of the world that you referenced earlier, somebody who's taking a lot of joy in music and in beauty and in the lives of ordinary people that I engage with. So I don't know. Uh, I just think of myself sometimes as like just a phantom, a joyous phantom, not a scary one, but someone who's moving through walls invisibly and uh, crossing bridges invisibly and hopefully, you know, spreading some joy and love in people's lives. That's very interesting, actually, because when you say a phantom, we are talking of beyond borders. So uh, as a human being, and literally a, a lot of your work also shows that. So it's literally defying borders. Many years ago, when you joined MTV, is it true, because I read it somewhere, that your knowledge of pop music sort of surprised your Western counterparts? Yeah, absolutely, it did, and it still does. And not because my knowledge is championship level or whatever. It's not that at all. I'm not the encyclopedia of music that I know many of my other friends are. It's just that for some people, for a lot of people, it's easier to deal with someone by putting them neatly into a box and assuming that they cannot, you know, imagine anything outside that box. And this is a limitation not of us. It's a limitation they have. They're the ones in prison. They're the ones that are ignorant. So, yeah, the answer is yes. But not because I'm a hero. It's because I think most of us, most of us, not just the folks at MTV at the time, most of us don't, we don't have fully formed images or ideas about people. You're a, a lady of Indian origin living in Hamburg. You know, I might come to some assumptions about you, but certainly... 110% those assumptions will not be accurate or at the very least will be highly incomplete. So that's a long-winded way of saying yes. You're right. Because the story is never complete. The story, as you rightly just said, in all our minds can never be complete. It will only be a particular perspective, larger or smaller. The mosaic is never complete. A lot of people themselves may not uh, know themselves, forget about other people knowing them. Easier to put into boxes, as you've said. So do you think that Western media has a role to play in the understanding or the lack of it of the rest of the world, including the East? Your question is, did Western media have a role to play in the lack of understanding of the rest of the world? Yes. Answer is yes, but that's not the only answer. I think the it wasn't just media. I think in the post-war world, the Western powers, the Western countries dominated most aspects of life, actually, I would argue, you know, like uh, most aspects of industry, most aspects of media, of storytelling, 
of technology, and of course, media was a part of it. So the narrative that was created in the post—I'm I'm talking most post-war—was shaped by Western media. I mean, it's not that India didn't have its own media, or that China, or you know, the Middle East didn't, but we were emerging cultures. We were post-colonial cultures, and we didn't have a fully developed voice. We didn't have fully developed platforms. Even now, some countries don't. So the narrative, including the pop culture that was shaped, was shaped by Western media. And I very firmly believe that. And so therefore, of course, the Western media has also done good, you know, because they were the only ones that actually were articulating what the rest of the world felt like and looked like and did in the news, but the fact that there wasn't a counterbalance to what the Western media was portraying about our countries has, I think, resulted in this very skewed portrayal, you know, of the world. And even now, I would argue, in the age of social media and numerous technologies for the dissemination of information, we still are. We still don't have a complete narrative the world. When media portrays generally, again, I'm saying generally, the trend would be to portray either the most beautiful aspects, which will bring big eyeballs, or the worst ones, which will attract attention and get more TRPs. Is there not space that, that leaves space for a larger narrative, the everyday, and parts of which are what I saw in some of your works? I mean, there's so many ways in which to parse what you're saying that, you know, we could spend the entire hour on that itself. But we have to define what is media. And I think that let's not just look at, think about Western media. Are we talking about news? Are we talking about, because news is not the only way that narratives are shaped. You know, news itself has become entertainment. So you're right on the one hand, or it's infotainment. So whatever is more likely to get TRPs, for example, the Trump in the US or whatever. So that's one piece of it. But I, I wouldn't be, at this point in time, when we have maturing post-colonial cultures, like India, like China, places in the Middle East, Latin America, Africa, we have our own media, you know? So we can now begin to, we don't have, our storytelling engines or media are not as powerful necessarily as that of the West, but we do have our own media. We have news agencies, we have, filmmakers and writers and storytellers and directors who are telling stories about our countries, our cultures. And we have the opportunity now to counter the narrative or at least make the narrative more fuller, you know, to present a, a bouquet of India, for example, rather than just one piece of it, one aspect of it, whether it's poverty or the crowdedness or pollution, whatever it is. India is complex and deep and wide and beautiful and has its own problems. But I'm saying, you take any other country. So we have our own media. And the point I'm trying to get to is that, at least in some cases, our own media, our own storytellers are not rising to the opportunity. You know, they simply are not. We are actually playing right into the narratives that have been handed to us. So I can give you two recent examples, you know. Two very big movies came were released recently from Hollywood, Oppenheimer and the Barbie film. I see them as uh, really well-made and amazing movies. 
first of all, I must say, a technically incredibly advanced and scintillating and innovative, and particularly Barbie, I think, a female director crossing a billion dollar, you know, box office. It's just really very inspiring on the one hand. But both films present a certain, I would argue, even imp imperialistic framework. And like, let's take the Oppenheimer example. I don't know if you've seen the film, but Oppenheimer is a very interesting film. I'm not a huge fan of Chris Nolan, but, you know, it's a well-made film. It's very well edited. I love the way it tells the story. It's layered, complex, beautiful. But it presents Oppenheimer, the man, as a very troubled and conflicted individual who really, although he invented the, the nuclear bomb, you know, and uh, for a reason, you know, we show him as really so tormented by the idea of dropping it on the Japanese. And in that conflict that we showed, you know, because I've always imagined Oppenheimer, I didn't know much about his life, but I've always imagined that someone would create the, a bomb that would cause so much horror in the world to be an evil genius, you know? Or it's not somebody I was very inspired by, even though he may have been brilliant and a genius, but it's not someone who inspired me. But the way that the film is presenting that character is almost heroic. We, in the end, would a lot of people would just get up and applaud because he just didn't want to do it. He's presented in such a new, complex, nuanced manner. And that's the power of filmmaking and Hollywood style of filmmaking. They make us believe anything. And even though the bomb was not required to be dropped, the war had already been won. The U.S. and Oppenheimer went along and dropped it because we wanted to show the world how powerful the country was and act as a deterrent. It didn't matter how many Japanese were killed. And even in the killing of the Japanese, it was the most horrific thing that had happened. And one of the most horrific things that's happened. Not a single Japanese is shown on screen, which I felt was a very brilliant, yet very devious move. Because even the suffering of the Japanese, we saw through Oppenheimer suffering. And this is a, another way of othering the problem. I would have liked to see in the film the faces, the melting bodies of those hundreds of thousands of people who were murdered by us, killed by us, so that we understood the horror of something like this, the horror of war. Of course, you could argue, we could have pros and cons about it. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me, and I'm, I'm fine with that. But I mean, this is one person's view. But what am I trying to say in relation to your question is that I saw very little critique of the film, very little. If, I mean, I've searched to see if there is a critique. There is, There are critiques, but they're not critiques by the New York Times or the Washington Post or, you know, the BBC or The Guardian. They're critiques by people like me who have a very limited influence in how a film or a story will be perceived. And so we, the rest of the world, just lapped it up. We are okay with that. And now that sits, that Oppenheimer film sits as probably one of the most influential records of a historic wrong that was done on innocent people. And my point that I'm trying to make here is that what is Hollywood is phenomenal. Hollywood and the American media industry gave me a career, so I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, it's also taught me to question the narrative and to put forward alternatives that need to exist. Otherwise, you know, we will be just be bludgeoned by narratives that no one is countering. And 
I mean, I can give you any example, uh, any number of examples of this. But uh, you know how it's said that Victor or something like that always writes the history is written by the victor or whatever. And in this case, there's no victor or, you know, victim or whatever, but because it's wrong happened many, many years ago. But the truth is, I think it adds insult to injury when a film like that, a beautiful, well-made, good film like that, that's what's dangerous about it, is that there's no counter to it. There exist several documentaries from Japan, Japanese directors, about that tragedy. And I think if somebody watched those, you know, they would understand truly from the other side what was, a, how horrible it was, the thing that film is about. I'm all about an equalization of storytelling, not in a sort of an academic manner, but I think through entertainment and information and beautifully made films or beautifully written books that actually present people who have never had their say. And I think that's the future, at least for me. The future is not technology, the future in terms of media. The future is the fullness of the human race, which is 8 billion people, being able to present their narratives in a fulsome, complex, celebratory, agonized manner. Perfect. That is what I was getting at, because... Um what you pointed out as an example is the danger of a single narrative, uh, which then becomes the narrative in the absence of other sides. So as you rightly said, one needs a fuller picture. You've traveled to, to war-torn parts of the world as well. I saw the film, Stories I Told My Mother. It was beautiful, poignant, moving, honest, and a slice of reality. Now, I want you to share a little bit about, I know, what went into its making and why do you think that those perspectives, again, an extension of the last question, why do you think that those perspectives are missing from the dialogue, media dialogue, or more fuller perspectives? Because they were real stories from real people. You know, I think first and foremost, I have to say that, that it was not a premeditated film. It was a very simple film that I wrote as a, as a response to my mother's disappearing from this world uh, because of Alzheimer's. And the, the sadness of it and the lyricism of it, you know, Alzheimer is a very complex, devastating disease, but it's also very poetic in a weird way, you know, that my mother was disappearing and I was clinging to her and clinging to her memory and trying to trigger things from her past that were I, I knew were disappearing in the fog of Alzheimer and dementia. So, you know, first and foremost, it's a tribute to my mother. And it's a weird, weird connection because, you know, my mother didn't, she traveled, but she didn't travel the world extensively. She came to visit us in England and in the US, etc. But she wasn't a world traveler, she was one of those people that I think we don't tell enough stories about. A heroic, angelic human being whose selflessness and compassion and generosity touched the lives of thousands of people, but not millions of people. She didn't win any major awards. She was not given the Padam Shri. She was not felicitated. But still in my hometown, when I walk the streets, I'm stopped by people who say to me, are you Rabia's son? 
or Dr. Rabia son? And I would say yes. And they would say, they would hold my hand and say, your mother saved my life. Or your mother gave me 500 rupees so I could feed my children. Or that she delivered my baby and didn't charge us. Or just small, beautiful things that touched lives and made her unforgettable. I think, first of all, we have to tell stories like that. That's why, I mean, no one's out there to make a, make a film about my mom because she didn't live in a Padam Shri or whatever. And that's not the reason I made it. I made the film because I was asked to speak at a, at a tech conference. And uh, I said, I, look, I have nothing much to say about tech these days. If you want, I'll make a film about my mom, about my mother's Alzheimer's, because that's what I'm dealing with. And the technology I'm using is to try to, you know, provoke her mind, her memory, by telling her stories of courageous women like her that she would, I hope, respond to. And that's what I was doing when I was traveling the rest of the world. I would come back and I would sit down with my mom and I would try to say, remember, mom, you, you used to tell me not to go to the swimming pool. She thought I'd drown. You know, she, was, she loved me so much. She didn't want me to put myself in any kind of danger. And then I told her the story of this French lady who actually risked her life, say, gave up, gave up, gave up her life to save two children who were drowning. And she responded to many of those stories. She really did. I, for in the time I was telling her, I, she wouldn't get engrossed and she would sometimes talk about the past, question me about these women, question me about the world. And in that way, I was able to relate to her. These perspectives are missing from the media dialogue. And um, the other side, one side is bad, one side is good. It's pretty much black and white, generally. But it's a different perspective. It's something as simple as when I take taxis here in Hamburg, they tell me their stories. Sometimes a taxi stops. I've even paid up. Sometimes they cry. And I've met people from across the world. And interestingly, a lot of their stories don't match with what I've read about those countries, including Afghanistan. That is what I meant about the realness of what we see and hear. I think that in the very highly polarized world that we live, particularly in those parts of the world where really there are fascist authoritarian regimes, for example, it's easier for us to divide through the othering of people that we don't want to have a relationship or those, those that we want to oppress. And I think that, let's take the example of refugees, for example, because there are a lot of people who are displaced in this world for no fault of theirs, whether it be for political reasons or the collapsing biosphere, the climate change, political things that have happened, that it's easier for us to other. And, you know, refugees are one, one of those. So I'll give you the recent example of there was a boat that collapsed that were that was taking refugees, I think, in the Mediterranean Sea. I think many, many people died in it. There was an SOS out and I think the Coast Guard couldn't save those people or actually deliberately didn't save those people. I forget exactly what it was. And then there was this uh, this submarine that imploded at the bottom of the sea of four billionaires or five people who were going to explore the wreck of the Titanic. Two tragedies. Each human life is valuable, obviously. But the way the media treated those two stories very differently, I think, showed, shows us, showed me one more time, one more tragic time, how the othering of people that 
we find less desirable happens. The five people on the submarine, we were individually profiled. So-and-so was a billionaire and he was there with his son and so-and-so did this and that, their names, their photos, and we all were captivated. We wanted to know what happened, you know, and why they died and all of that. Those other people who died in that boat that collapsed were refugees. And I didn't see a single picture of, I don't remember, maybe I didn't do a good enough search for it, but I'm very drawn to the refugee crisis. I didn't see anybody's story. I didn't see anybody's face. I didn't see anybody's child and what their dreams were and what their hopes were and what they had achieved or not. None of that happened. That whole story disappeared after a few days, except I have to say the New York Times did multiple pieces on them. My point is, it's, I think, easier and more convenient for us in this what is the word, way to put it? You know, this fatigue of tragedy that we just choose the things that we will empathize with or give our compassion to. And often people at the who are most oppressed and struck with the most ama- amount of misfortune are missed out in that and I, in this economy of compassion. And I think that is a singular tragedy. And it's a really great flaw in our, in the world, I would argue. Uh, for that to happen, you know? So again, I don't know if that answers your question, but the, I think those are very, very important stories to tell. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's also because some of the, almost all the stories I've ever heard from people who are marginalized or oppressed or don't have a voice are phenomenal. They're inspiring. They're beautiful. They have all the ingredients of a good story, you know? Great characters, great situations that they're transcending their joys and hopes and aspirations. And I think that's great storytelling. And I think we just don't go there because we're so obsessed with bullshit. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. And going back to the point I was making is that the media industries of the emerging markets, unfortunately, are not, in my humble opinion, partaking of this great opportunity, the investments that Netflix is making in India, for example, or that Amazon is making in Prime Video in India and other companies in India and elsewhere. We should be taking that responsibility, that opportunity very seriously and thoughtfully and producing not just things that would be commercially successful and entertaining, but also things that will change the narrative, which transform the story of our lives and bring people into the ecosystem, into the world that have not been seen before, whose stories have not been told. You know, I'm in India now for the past 10 months working on a couple of projects, and every day I'm meeting people who I think I would like to make a film about or write a story about. And actually, that's the reason I'm writing a book, is because no one else is going to tell those stories. I will. And maybe no one will even ever read my book, but I would have tried. I would have left something that hopefully one random stranger would pick up in a bookstore or on their whatever, you know, their device and say, wow, this is, I didn't even know this existed. I I get that. But the question is, this entire lack of um, perspective or or wanting to put a complete picture, and as you rightly pointed out just now, a very good example, what you just gave of the that ship which drowned and uh, the other one is it only because eyeballs or or generally people are drawn to to commercials the commercial success i mean the money part or is it something else or is just the lack of vision i think that first of all i think there is no complete picture of the world there can never be a complete picture of anything 
everything is an ever-shifting, ever-changing reality of 8 billion people living in a dynamic, wild you know, ecosystem where multiple forces are at play. So there's no such thing, I would say. But your point about is it commercial reasons or is it whatever else? I think it's both and all. We're drawn to the commercial, obviously. We are, we are entertaining ourselves to death, I think. There's enough, there's too much content which is too similar. It should never be commissioned. It should never be made. There should be a law against it, to be honest. Uh, it's a waste of money and time. And eventually, it'll be a losing business proposition to put out so much content. It's, it's no one can ever watch just to add more and more and more to it. But the other thing is that, yes, we are, we, we are facing a crisis of imagination. We are lobotomized, programmed. We have no vision of the world. Or we do have a vision of the world that is inc incredibly singular and one-dimensional, perhaps. A lot of the people commissioning projects all over the world that I meet have never actually stepped out of their office. The whole thing is a formula on you know, how to <laughs> approach you know, greenlighting a movie or a series or whatever. And I, in this regard, again, I just want to bring back MTV. We never worked like that. To us, data was useful to have and to know and read what is happening in the world. The research was very important. But I would argue most of our programming decisions, most of our green lighting decisions were pure madness, intuition, the desire to experiment, the desire to bring untold voices into the frame, the desire to present music that had never been seen or heard. We were driven by that stuff. We were driven by creativity. We were driven by vision. We were driven by, frankly, I would be a, no other word but to say madness, a creative good madness. And I see that very rarely in storytelling now. Obviously, I don't read or see everything. No one can. And I'm not some guru or some judge of what is good or not. The truth is there's nothing dangerous out there. You know, very few things are dangerous. Very few Films present dangerous ideas. And when I say dangerous, I'm not talking about, you know, psycho killers. Dangerous in the way that an idea that shakes our roots, that shakes our understanding of the world, presents an option, presents another view. There's nothing truly surprising or delightful. Very few things are. There are, there are some exceptions, no doubt, you know, but I see very little that is, you know, awe inspiring. Not just because of the way it's made or how much money was spent in the, in the production or the sort of whatever, but in the concept, in the face that's in, in the frame, you know, uh, and the story that you're telling. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but yeah, it's both commercial. And I think that time and again, we have proven that if you present something that is new and original and breathtaking and authentic, it can be commercially successful. There is, it's not, these are not mutually exclusive things by no means. Something that is out, completely out of the blue can be commercial. I mean, in the black examples, the dark examples would be, you know, Squid Game from South Korea. You know, no one, I'm sure no one in the South Korea of Netflix thought, this is going to be a great hit. Let's do this. It's an off kilter, wild idea that worked. And yeah, I'm not suggesting we keep making series like that, but I'm just saying no one would have suggested also from South Korea, Parasite would be such a hit. Very different ecosystem, very different world, but it was a huge hit. And I can, there's anything I can confidently say and for India, for example, we are wasting that opportunity that has come our way. The billions of, of dollars of investment in, in filmmaking 
there are lots of great directors and filmmakers and writers in this country that are actually making good stuff. But the majority of the content coming out on our screens is really, it makes you wonder, where is the disconnect between the decision makers and the people who are actually going through this stuff? And uh, I think that's a, it's a great shame because, you know, once you make something, in the digital media will live forever. Uh, you know, this is not the age of print and uh, celluloid where, you know, copies are not uh, harder to duplicate. I mean, you make anything now, it's going to live forever somewhere on some hard drive on someone's computer or someone's screen. And what are we doing with the opportunity we've been given is a question to ask. Are we? I think the approach, going back to your point about commerce, is we're data-driven. Such and such things did well. We need a rom-com. We need a horror show. We need a, you know true crime, whatever. That's not a way to approach, I think, story. I mean, you should have that. I mean, your business goals are very important, but the way you get to your business goals is there are many strategies that you need to deploy. And like, I don't want to go to that part of it, but yeah, that's my view. And you're right. If one can make out a good product in an original and creative way and package it in a way which is acceptable. Because I do agree with one po at this point as well that Right now, the world is at a level where you gave some examples of in Korean movies, uh, which were series which were accepted, widely acclaimed, and so on, which was a surprise. But then they are accepted. That's the point. Maybe a decade ago, that may not have happened. So we are at a stage where a lot can be done, a lot may be also accepted by a larger audience. I read about Rebel Music and how it came into being. It literally brought the mosaic of the East and the West into a glittering focus but what pushed you into creating that it wasn't that same madness that you were talking about i it wasn't madness it was uh, what i found stunning uh, in america at the time it was made and between 2012 and i would say 15 16 is that there was so little understanding with, with what was happening in the world in those days for there was a second uh, Arab Spring happening in Egypt and other countries. There was violence in Mali. There was obviously the ongoing stuff in Iran. There was a lot of turbulence in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. And, you know, we, we read, again, it goes back to our earlier point, was like we read about these things in the New York Times and on CNN. Something is happening in Egypt. Something is happening in Afghanistan. But, you know, I felt like very few people, especially our young audience, knew what is Afghanistan. And we, the way we understood Afghanistan, for, the, for example, was the Taliban, at the time Karzai, misogyny. It was like they're savages just killing each other. And it was very distant and very abstract. And I think we tended to we tend to forget even now that Afghanistan is full of young people too. It's full of people with hope and aspiration and dreams and joy and music and pop culture. And when you start viewing the a country through those lenses, it appears more immediate and intimate and relatable. And I think what was we were trying to do with Rebel Music is that we wanted to present the world that was so much in turbulence around us through a di different framework than the framework of just old, savage men wreaking havoc on the world, on their own people. And we wanted to humanize the youth in those countries. And I think that, that including our own country, which is America, we had never seen, for example, there was no articulation or image of young indigenous people in the country until we made rebel music. 
we were always presenting, or media was always presenting, young indigenous people as sort of like just in shorthand, you know, exotic, dressed in feathers or whatever, very derogatory portrayals. And it moved me greatly because there was a vibrant pop culture in the Native American community that had never been tapped into. We had never really given voice to the young indigenous people. Most Americans didn't even know the Native American reality because there are only about three and a half, four million indigenous people left in the USA and it's their country. You know, in short, we just wanted to articulate, we wanted to humanize and present the youth of countries or parts of the world in turbulence. And I think it worked because suddenly you saw, you know, Rami Esam in Egypt, a musician fighting oppression with his bare hands in the, in Tahrir Square, or you saw the Turkish youth really in, from Many sides, the conservatives and the liberals and the people in between really grappling with their changing world, with grappling with, a, with authoritarian regimes, grappling with this, this pressure to, for Turkey to become Islamic, for example, a secular nation. And we were there in the thick of it, filming it and giving voice to the young. And I think America saw the true nature of these, these conflicts. Uh, same thing in Mali, same thing in Mexico in all the many places that we went to. When you say we, question is, did you originate the idea? and How did you get the people to come along with that idea? Your whole team, you need a whole bunch of people to come along with an idea, to float with it. Well, first of all, I had a phenomenal team that worked for us at MTV. So, so for lots of people, directors, uh, cinematographers, DPs, etc., so we had a great team. But but the, on that, I think what we did was that when the idea was greenlit, we really hired the production crews from the countries we had gone to film in. Because I didn't want to be an American company going there and standing at a distance and telling the story of these people and their stories. Literally every episode of Rebel Music has been made, directed, written, researched by local people. So the Turkey example is a good one. It was made by an all-Turkish women's crew. The director of the episode was a woman, Turkish woman. Majority of the staff filmed and edited it was, they were Turkish. Um, and we therefore got an authentic, original story. Uh, same thing with the Native American episode. One of the conditions that the Native American community finally, I mean, it was very hard to make that episode, by the way, because there was so much mistrust or distrust of the media that the Native communities, they didn't want us to do it. They, did, they didn't want to cooperate. And it's only when, after months of trying, that we agreed that we're just providing the machinery and the platform for you to tell your stories. The director was Native. Most of the people involved in the production were Native. Obviously, the artists were all Native. And it's only when they understood that we are trying to do from our perspective, the right thing that they cooperated. And then, of course, uh, I think the rest is history because it became one of the most popular, shared, commented, viewed episode, a uh, piece of media that MTV had put on social media in its, in its history with no superstar in it. There was no Beyonce in it. There was no Jay-Z in it. It was just Indian, Native American, indigenous artists. And, and because the story resonated, it was a story of a community that had for so long, forever, 
never had a voice, never was seen. And now you see many, many, many projects, many projects that are na feature native, uh, native American people, indigenous people, and I'm so happy and so glad that's happening, but it took a very, very long time. That I understand. So it's actually very wonderful. I'm so glad that you did that. You took the local people because their portrayal of their reality would be fairly different from one month from another country and come back and do from there. But was it very difficult for you to get a green light on the idea? It was. It wasn't easy because I was told that nobody would watch this stuff. Nobody cares about what's happening in Afghanistan to rappers or uh, heavy metal bands or the youth. Nobody cares what's happening Iran, in Iran. But I think to MTV's credit, they gave me a lot of latitude and they let me do a lot of experimentation as long as I delivered. At the end of the day, I delivered results. And in this case, the results were very uh, great critical acclaim, great recognition by the communities we featured, etc. So it wasn't easy, but you know, I had great, very inspiring leadership at MTV that I worked with. And like I said earlier, we took chances. Sometimes we did things that we felt were right to do. We had to do them, not for commercial reasons, but because they were important culturally and socially and even politically. It was that kind of an environment. And I don't see many environments like that today. Because I think now decisions are made, made largely on the basis of data, on commercial potential, or consensus. The worst thing that can, is to when you make a creative decision by consensus, everything dies. Uh, and that's what I think is the more the more the case now. There are of course visionaries who are green light presenting and green along green lighting amazing things. But by and large what I see is just when you make something by consensus aimed at the lowest common denominator, which is usually how things become commercially successful, I think that's just tragic. I totally agree on the consensus bit. Because I sit on the edge there because Consensus means getting that number of people on board with it, and that number of people may not even get the idea, while two of them may have the understanding of a certain vision. So I'm pretty much with you on that. What or who has been the biggest influence in your journey? You've been, this is a journey between the East and the West and across the globe. And I see, and I come back to the first question when I had asked you, and you said you were a phantom when, uh, and I could actually understand that moving between different realities. What or who has been the biggest influence? Because I worried about how a lot of musicians and the Western musicians influenced your growth. So let's say growth or understanding or during the, your teenage years when you were growing up in India as well. So just help me there to understand. You know, I mean, so many people, so many people from all across the psychic <laughs> universe of creatives and leaders, actually. I, I would argue for my mom and dad. I mean, there's uh, my mother, my father sparked my imagination with music and science, science fiction and literature like nobody else. He'd never left the country ever, but he knew more about the world than anybody I still know, to be honest. My mother, obviously who was not at all. She was the opposite. She was not creative. She was just a pragmatic, practical person. But beyond that, in the world, I mean, in my career, there are lots of people who've helped me. I would say that the founder, one of the founders of MTV, Tom Preston, he's a phenomenal, very inspiring 
presence. Many others, Judy McGrath, who was a uh, one-time chairman there, people like Fred Seibert, who was a creative uh, genius I still know. These are people I still know and still regard, uh, hold in high regard. But of course, the panorama of influence is just so vast. I mean, and it's not encoded. You know, a lot, a lot like you were saying, in your youth, my learning is not over. I'm not in my youth, perhaps, but inside my head, I am incredibly, I would say, agitated and restless. And whether it be writers, um, you know, William Burroughs, I mean, I'm just writing a story influenced by him, or Jack Kerouac or Allen Ginsberg or the generations of artists, both artists from like the past and who are still operational or artists now. They're so incredibly inspiring. I mean, Dylan, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, who died, obviously, Joan Baez, who I met and made a film with, any number of people like that, Nick Cave, who's very much active right now. In India, there are, I mean, I think India is a country which is an infinite inspiration to me, infinite potential to me, from writers to filmmakers, Sean Benegal, obviously, Sapyajit Ray, actors, Om Puri, Smita Patil, and who's my somebody I I think consider one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, uh, one of the best actresses I've ever seen. Films we have made here in this country are endlessly inspiring. But I think if there was, if photographers, filmmakers, painters, but I mean, if you were to say, I think it's so hard, you know, Minu, because I'm still in it. I'm still agitated and vibrating. Uh, you know, I'm listening to, you know, Rai, Algerian Rai music, uh, and, uh, you know, music from the Middle East and from Africa. And, and I'm reading people from, you know, Latin America, and I'm watching films from Iran, you know, and I'm partaking heavily of new music coming out of the West today. Uh, you know, I'm a music junkie. I mean, I would safely say that if there's any drug I take, it is music, and I buy music. I don't use Spotify. I don't want an algorithm to tell me what to listen to. So I'm actively, you know, traveling the world through music on a daily basis, every day. So who are my influences? I mean, I think Bob Dylan, by far, is, I think, the major influence in my life from a music perspective. But, you know, there's also influence from sci-fi, from Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison and, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and people like that, you know. So, by the way, it's not, this is all these, all these people sound like gods, and they are. But, you know, they're, Sometimes, I mean, these days I'm holed up in my apartment because I'm writing a book. It's a very lonely and insular process. And I think my, some of my revelations really come from places you don't really think would be. Like my valet, the guy who works for me and takes care of me. He's someone I'm drawing incredible inspiration from these days. His life is magic. He's just really someone who's a superhero in my mind. And his family and the way that they're navigating through this life, this man whose name is Amit and his wife and two boys who live three hours away in a village and how he manages to work with me and take care of them and how full their lives are and how joyous and inspiring. Not the richest people in the world, not the poorest people in the world either, but people with imagination. This man has not studied. He cannot read or write Hindi or any other language. It has a fully formed view of the world, sense of right and wrong, and a sense of morality and compassion and enterprise. And it's so inspiring to me. 
because those again going back to stories like I want to make a film about him I definitely want to write a story of him about him how he was working in Noida when the pandemic happened and he had to when everyone was told to go home you know he had a scooter and his wife and two boys and they got on their scooter and drove for the 10 hours it takes to get to near Lucknow through obstacles you know police barriers and night and crime and stuff like that can you imagine this man doing this it it's stunning and india is full of those heroes heroic lives like really truly beautiful so anyway your point was these kind of people have influenced me a lot i mean we when we were growing up in lucknow we had a magical childhood i had a transgender cook and in those days you know we think of these issues as a very big hot topics and i think in my family it never was even discussed we never even once talked about him being transgender uh, <laughs> because it just was he was an inspiring all encompassing really zany and unforgettable and gruff character who shaped my childhood and taught me to be open to multiplicity you know like the world is a bouquet you know not everyone will look like you or be like you or act like you and that's the beauty of it because who wants to live in a world where everybody is like you it'll be the most boring and terrifying place on the planet you know true true so your influences have been multiple and i totally agree with the multiplicity part i uh, tell my son when he has very different opinions the world is a garden So and there'll be flowers of many colors. It would be very boring if you only had white. So just accept it, and it's very beautiful. So, so you mentioned one of, in one of your talks that you spent your career in, in bringing the thrill and color of the side of the world to the West. Why that drive? Because I think the West, as I saw it and and still see it, sadly is sadly ignorant. and ill-informed of the rest of the world i think to their disadvantage i think that they would be far more enlightened and probably enriched by meeting the world i don't think that we should only be seeing the world through the you know like you think you've understood the world just because you went to rome to or to the colosseum and just saw a few things that's not the that's, that's not seeing the world and i thought that to create that bridge between America which became was my adopted home and my country and the rest of the world was something that I could uniquely do at the time and this is by the way pre digital media pre social media some of it happened during that but you know I'm talking about I've been I was with MTV from 1995 for 20 plus years so a lot of the work I did was before before it became cool to have to you know Bollywood became cool or accepted in the US. I launched MTV Desi in 2005, you know. There was very little content from India on our, our main screens in the US. And I launched a K-pop channel that same year in 2005 because people didn't know what K-pop was. Even at people at MTV didn't know what K-pop was. I think we created bridges. We made people see things that they had never seen in a joyous, beautiful way. And um I think that there is still not enough of it even though we are living in the age of so- social media there is still a vast emptiness in our understanding of the world I mean vast I was just researching a story I was writing about the the 
what's happening in South Sudan for since, I don't know, 2011 or something, or what happened in Syria, or what's happening in Latin America every day. Not for just politics, not just politics. I mean, daily lives, you know, daily culture. And there's not, I mean, how much do we know about the Sama people of Scandinavia, the indigenous people of the North? Very little. Their lives are, I mean, you've never heard of them. You've never questioned who they are. And coming back to India for a second, we have a very, very nebulous and negative understanding of the what I call the, the sort of the untouchables in our country. And these are lives that cannot just simply be defined by the caste system. I think that these are lives which have, have they need articulation beyond the headlines, beyond the negativity, beyond the oppression. These are incredibly powerful stories that would shake you if you heard some of their narratives. You know, really powerful. That's seeping into my writing now. Um, so, you know, it goes back to the point you were making earlier. I mean, our learning is never done. I'm on fire. I, I, I get it, sir. You are being influenced by it's the extraordinary in the ordinary that you see. So it's a matter of observation and connection. I think it's also a matter of curiosity and uh, being able to let the world sway you. You have to let the world bend you and shape you. If you walk out in the streets very firmly in your, in your limousine with a driver, and you never go to the subway, you never step out and let the world take you. You're not open. You think you've arrived. Everything's already happened. It's in the past or it's whatever, you know. You're encoded. You're a fully formed piece of code. You're perfect. I think that's to me, sounds like death because either you're busy being born or you're busy dying, according to Bob Dylan in one of his songs. And I think that I want to be busy being born because every day is a new chance to learn and become someone else or something else. You know? That calls for fluidity of thought and being. That is what we are looking at. What is home for you? Where and what is home for you? Because uh, you lived a large portion in, and also in the US and in New York and you transit between countries, you've traveled a lot. Where does it feel like home? Today, most of the day, I felt like Tangier in uh, Morocco is home because <laughs> I've been there and my story is based there. So I'm in that world, actually. I think more seriously, though, I, honestly, I think that home or rather city or country is like, to me, I, the home is a confluence of the places I've lived in and loved. You know, so I would say that Definitely, I think New York is home. I think Lucknow is home. I was born there. I grew up. I, I was born here, and I grew up here. I've lived in the Middle East. The Middle East is home. I've traveled through the world, and loved many of its cities. Berlin is one of my favorite cities in the world. And I think in my mind, I really do move like a phantom, and not in a creepy manner. But I, I think I do transition from one reality to another. And I think home is for me really the world. And sometimes I feel like, you know, there are birds that sleep when they fly. You know, they're asleep because they're at home in the wind. And I feel like that metaphor, it probably applies to me because I really don't know what is home. But I'm here in Lucknow for the many months writing. This is definitely home for me. It's, you know, beloved and lovely and warm, steeped in the past and one of the places that need to revive themselves and start being born again. 
but still it's home. And I also feel New York is home. Absolutely. Uh, when I'm in Istanbul, I feel Istanbul is home for sure. I love the place very much. So you're a global citizen. I, I think that would have, that would have been the more elegant way of saying it, <laughs> but I'm suppose I'm not as economical with words, I suppose, as you are, but yeah. I'm trying to be economical with words. <laughs> Your words, in, in fact, are, are very inspirational and in their own ways. However, what would you like to leave the people with as an inspiration? <laughs> Am I dying soon? <laughs> uh, we all are, I suppose. We're, we're, uh, no, you're leaving the talk. We're, we're, <laughs> we're headed. Somebody was saying that life is a, you know, I saw this magnificent film I've never seen, uh, A Taste of Cherry by Abbas Kuristami. It's a masterpiece uh, of uh, Iranian cinema. And in it, a character says, you know, life is a train journey. And, and eventually you read the terminal and the terminal is death. You know, I, I want in this regard to be a little bit like my mom. I don't care about the money I leave behind or even the films that I sometimes make or the books I write or whatever. I don't, none of that matters to me, really. But when I'm gone, if somebody stops my child on the street and they say to her, was your dad Nusrat? And, uh, and she says, yeah, he's my, my dad. Is. And, and that person holds, you, holds her hand and says, you know, he did this for me and he made me smile or he did something kind to me or whatever that is. I think that's what I want to leave behind, you know. Yeah, everything else is, it's okay. Everything else is transient. Your achievements can be sort of bettered or outdone by anybody else. If you have five medals, somebody has 10. If you $8 billion, somebody has 20. I, you know, it's all great. But I think if I have 20 people even who think of me fondly and say, hey, he did me a good turn or he made me smile or he called me when I was sick or I think that's, I have very modest aspirations in this regard. I totally understand that. That's a legacy of life that you are leaving behind. And um, thank you, Nusrat, for joining us. And uh, it was amazing. It was beautiful. And um, I happened to go through a lot of your works. It, As I mentioned, you were a tough one you were to agree with. But uh, when you did agree, I actually went through a lot of your works. And very touching. There were points when I literally wanted to cry. Uh, they, were, they touched me so much. I connected. I connected with, with pretty much most of what I saw and heard. And thank you for sharing a part of yourself, because that's what you were doing. Beyond everything, I see you as an artist because you're so fluid and you're constantly expressing in different ways is what I gathered. Thank you for being there, Nusrat. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure being able to speak with you. And that, dear listeners, is Nusrat Durani for you. To humanize situations, be able to connect to the dreams, hopes, and lives of millions of people across the globe and present their stories in an authentic way seems to be his life's mission. He believes in stories that are rarely told. He sees beauty, courage, and joy in the lives of people who are considered ordinary by themselves and the world. He finds their life stories magical and inspiring between the East and the West. Today, my dear listeners, 
I'll leave you with a question. What is ordinary and what is extraordinary to you? Do write in and tell us. And what are the stories that you would like to hear and see in the media between the East and the West? Thank you for listening to the series Between the East and the West. Do subscribe to the channels mentioned on the site in case, of course, you liked what you heard. I am Meenu Gupta, the host of the series, and I'll be looking forward to your comments. We love feedback. Thank you once again. Namaste and bye-bye.